If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We, if you're newer here, we are in a sermon series called Good News for the Not So Good. Good News for the Not So Good. This is the 10th message in the series, 1 through 9, you can find on our church website. For those of you that don't know, we also have, and still working on that, we need to work on that some more with me, Pastor Jim, if you could, and Renisha, but the, the, the Facebook page for Baseline Christian Fellowship, I do post some things there occasionally as well to kind of keep you up to speed on what's going on, but uh, all the messages that I preach and have preached are online for your listening pleasure, if you will. Last week, we laid out the foundation, really kind of touching on where we're going today, talking about uh, sexual immorality, and uh, we'll talk more about that today as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Next week, should Jesus tarry, and I'm, I'm, I'm here and you're here, uh, we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about that all-important topic of marriage. And uh, so if you want to read ahead, there's where we're going. But anyway, today is number 10, Becoming Who You Are. Becoming Who You Are, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world. By the way, in this chapter, do you not know, as I think six times mentioned, and do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So basically what Paul was doing here in writing this letter was rebuking the believers in Corinth. And he was coming down a little hard on them. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord up, and God raised the Lord will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Wow, what a chapter, what a lot of information Paul is giving us as he continues in his letter to the Corinthians. Well, today we are looking, as I said, uh, becoming who you are as we continue in our series on 1 Corinthians. And today finds us in an interesting chapter, chapter 6, with kind of a new out-of-control situation to confront. Years ago, I heard a pastor refer to chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians as the church gone wild. All right, as a title, and it does make a pretty good tagline for this section. I mean, it was, in, in what ways was Corinth really then that church gone wild? Well, last week we looked at the story of the unspeakably sinful situation in which one of the church members was engaged in an intimate relationship with his father's wife, and, and the kicker was the church was okay with it and never dealt with the sin in their, in their congregation. Well, today we're going to look at some more bad behavior that was really damaging the church's credibility, damaging the church's witness in the community. And the first matter that Paul dealt with was the matter of lawsuits. Now, if you think that we're in a litigious uh, world today, uh, the Greco-Roman world was even more so. I mean, they loved, back then, they loved taking people to court at every opportunity they had. I mean, for them, it became entertainment. If there was television back then, back then, this would be, for them, a reality TV show. You know, uh, it, gawkers love to go to the public square and watch the drama unfold in people's personal lives. Matter of fact, juries back then weren't made of merely a dozen of your peers. Juries in Corinth would be a minimum of 200 individuals in small matters. For bigger cases, the jury would be 400 or 500 people, individuals. And in some top-level cases, the jury could be more than 1,000 individuals. Can you imagine their sessions? Can you imagine trying to be part of that? I don't know about you, but when we get notification that you're on jury duty, it's like, no thanks, how can I get out of this? Right? I, I've been there, I've, I've answered the call several times to go up here, and then they say, well, you're not needed today. I'm always trying to think of, of what could I say to get dismissed from jury duty. But in those days, jury consultants really had their work cut out for them. Now, the problem here with, with, with what was going on that Paul addressed was, was Christians then in that church involving themselves in this, in this secular process. Now, generally, as Romans chapter 13 indicates, Paul's opinion of pagan magistrates was favorable. But here, 
we are carried back to the arguments on wisdom that Paul's been talking about in, in the first five chapters and reminded the Corinthians that they could not and should not be settling these trivial kind of disputes because, because they went to court instead of doing it themselves and, and they didn't heed the revelation of God to them. And then the phrase, not before the saints, indicates, you know, it's not wrong, hear me on this, it's not wrong to seek justice. It's not wrong to, to seek justice and, and, and uh, get, a, you know, get a, uh, basically an outcome for a case or whatever, but really law and order and an honest court, they, they are blessings from God, but the Corinthians were seeking the wrong advice and disputing petty, trivial matters. Also keep in mind that Paul never used the courts to accuse his opponents, but only in defense of his work. And I, I'm, I'm tempted, but I won't, just to go of, of where this nation's at, using the courts and the two-tier justice system we seem to have today in America. I move on. In Corinth, they were engaging in legal battles with each other. They were going through the spectacle of a public trial uh, in which accusations were flung to and fro and dirty laundry was, was hung out for all to see. Uh, guess what? Yeah, as Christians, we have to be careful for our witness in the world. We need to guard our witness in this world. And so these believers who were supposed to pattern their lives after Jesus Christ were literally waging war with one another in the secular courts, allowing secular authorities to determine the outcome. And Paul was in effect saying, I expect you, church, to be able to resolve these conflicts among yourself without the help of those that have no connection whatsoever to the church. Verses 4 and 5, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Once again, a rebuke in those words from Paul to the church. Well, today, taking each other to court isn't the only problem. How many have noticed that, that, that people love to let their lives be lived out on social media? You know, and, and, and many, even back then, if, if there was such a thing, there wasn't, but uh, that, is, that we know, but, but, but thousands of people would, would love to watch and get in on what was going on. And so really, when I see these petty conversations taking place, even today, between believers on social media, I can't help but think, you know, this might be a matter that's better settled outside of social media and privately with some godly, spiritually mature leaders. And, and you say, well, Pastor Brian, what's the fun in that? Exactly. You know, but, but that's the way it should be done. So after discussing lawsuits, Paul then turns his attention to another matter. And he doesn't cite specific instances as he did in chapter 5 that we talked about last week, but he does imply that an occurring problem was there within the church. And he was referring once again then to what is called sexual immorality of the most, most exploitive manner, individuals of the church actually visiting prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And he says in verse 13, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But then he says in verse 14, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? 
Never. I mean, God forbid is what Paul's saying here. And then he goes on to say that when two people unite with one another in this intimate way, they become one. In other words, when a man joins his body to an immoral woman's body in the act of sexual intimacy, the two become one. It causes him then to become one with her. It causes them to be, or him to become under her domination. It really desecrates the cross and what Christ has done on the cross for us. And the ultimate end, end game of that then, it severs that person from the kingdom of God. If you missed last week, I will say briefly that sex is reserved between a man and a woman who are married, period. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. All right, and so we're going to talk more about that today a little bit. I dealt with it pretty specifically last week. Now, people virtually remove themselves from union with Christ by making their bodies members of immoral and ungodly persons. And more than really any other sinful act, sexual immorality is particularly abhorrent to God for it desecrates the body which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, thus Paul gives the admonition, flee sexual immorality. In our lives, there are some sins that we stand and fight you know, against, but there's other sins it's not fight for, it's flight. It's fight or flight. You recall the story of Joseph in Potiphar's household. Man, he booked it out of there when Mrs. Potiphar was making moves on him. Hartman's paraphrase. All right. So this was not just the meaningless encounter that many in the Greco-Roman world believed it to be. You see, in those days... The predominant idea was that the body itself is insignificant. It's just dead weight that you drag around. They would say that it's your soul or your spirit is what really matters. Well, that kind of thinking then, back then, led people to believe and conclude, and it's true today as well, well, since my body is of no great value, what I do with my body really doesn't matter. Now, it's my spirit that matters the most, the person I am inside, and so my pursuit of every imaginable pleasure won't change who I am. Now, many in Corinth and all throughout the Roman world really felt that way. They felt like this. Well, since the body doesn't matter, anything and everything is permissible. In other words, I can do what I want to do, I, I, can, I can get by with what I want to get by with. I don't have to live under God's standard. Does that sound familiar today? Yes, it does. Everything being permissible. And then complicating this issue among the believers was the fact that there were some leaders in the local church who distorted Paul's teaching of Christian freedom by saying, in effect, the church was saying, in effect, well, since Jesus paid the price for all our sins, and since all of our sins have been forgiven, we can now do whatever we want without consequence. Once again, even in the church back then, everything became permissible. Now, Paul is simply saying, guys, that's not the case here. Let me make a statement. I want you to hear this. There is no such thing as consequence-free behavior. There is no such thing 
as consequence-free behavior. And so Paul is saying that this kind of conduct is really unbecoming of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? Church, you're better than this. Church, it is time that you begin to live up to God's standard and God's way of doing things and seeing things and what God's word has said, then doing with your body whatever you want to do. And then Paul draws attention in this letter in chapter 6 to the three phases of the Christian life. And these three phases apply to each of us. First of all, he talks about who you were back then who you were before you came to Christ. Now, some of those in the Corinthian church had quite a past. Matter of fact, Paul is saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and Paul literally makes a list. He lists out nine things in verses 9 and 10. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But, this, but Paul says this in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Now, I don't know if our collective list of sins is quite this colorful that we read about in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. But I will say this, every one of us has a past. Every one of us. In other words, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all at one time have found ourselves, as the old song says, sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore. A fellow pastor recently wrote, last week after the service, we couldn't help but laugh as I introduced two of our new people, Melinda and Leanne, to one another. And Leanne says, you look so familiar. I think we've met before, but I don't remember where. And Melinda said, well, I remember we met at the White County Jail. Leanne was embarrassed at first, but then the pastor says, I can't tell you how happy it makes me after meeting you today that you two met in jail for the first time, but you met the second time in the church. What am I saying? We all have a past. And so, number one, who you were. And then Paul talks about then, number two, who you are today. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. We used to be that way, but now because of what Christ has done, you're this way. In the next letter to the church at Corinth, Paul would say it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a good scripture to memorize. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Aren't you glad that you are no longer who you used to be, but today you are a new creation in Christ Jesus? Aren't you glad the old has passed away? and is passing away, and the new has come, amen? And that's why Paul says, even in verse 20 of, of today's text, you were bought with a price. Now, what price? Well, the price that Jesus paid when he died on the cross in your place. 
See, while he hung there on that wood between the worlds, suspended between heaven and earth, he paid the price for your salvation. And friends, I got news for us today. God loves you too much to leave you in your sin. Therefore, he sent Jesus Christ who would die in your place on that cross, the the one who, who knew no sin would become sin for you so you could experience his righteousness. And so keep in mind that God loves you. He is for you and not against you. But you must repent of your sin. You must surrender, submit your life to Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, we all deserve the judgment of God because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And so we deserve His justice. We deserve His judgment. But Jesus willingly suffered the judgment and death that we deserve. And so yes, our sins are forgiven once and for all and forever. And throughout this letter, Paul wants to make sure that Christ followers in Corinth really understood who they were in Christ. And such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. We see this from the very beginning, where Paul said, and this morning I took time to read chapters 1 through 5 again, but Paul said in the beginning how we were, we've been sanctified, we've been made holy, we've been enriched in every way, and that God has promised to keep us strong to the end. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's the first nine verses of chapter 1. Once again, good news for the not so good, all right? Even in spite, Paul is saying, of your many faults and your shortcomings and failures, you belong to Jesus, and Jesus has no intention of letting you go. Amen. In other words, he loves you too much, and he has too much invested in you to let you go your own way. To say it very plainly, you can't out-sin the grace of God. You can't out-sin the grace of God. I mean, what a statement, right? Maybe now it's easier to understand how this powerful message of God's never-ending mercy could be distorted. I mean, out of context. Kind of like, well, since I can't out-sin the grace of God, that gives me permission to do anything and everything I want, right? No. Right. Even though God's grace knows no bounds, it should never be misconstrued to mean that we are free to sin without consequence. Now, what has the power to teach us to say no to sin? Not the law of God, or the fear of getting caught, or even living in the right community where people hold us accountable. Talked about that last week. See, all these things have their place in the process of of sanctification. To a certain extent, they may even help us in our struggle against sin and temptation. But Exodus 20, 20 tells us that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Godly fear. The fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom. But in addition to godly fear... The Bible says there's something else we need. 
when Paul wrote to Titus, which is, the fir- which is a letter that Paul wrote to the pastor of the first church on the island of Crete, Paul writes this, Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God, everybody say grace of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, what's the it? The grace of God. It, God's grace. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. God's grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Friends, it is grace, only grace, that has the power to teach us to say no to ungodliness and to renounce the sinful desires of the world and to live instead a life that is pleasing to God. That's the sanctifying power of the grace of God. And so when Paul says to Titus, you know, for the grace of God that has appeared to all men, the words has appeared, he's talking about the manifestation of salvation in the person in the work of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for appearance means to reveal or to make known. It's where we get our English word epiphany, something that has suddenly come to light. Here's what I truly honestly believe and have experienced and am experiencing. The more we know the grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ, the more we want to serve him. The more we know the grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ, the more we want to serve him. In other words, grace makes us grateful in a way that leads to godliness. When I understand the grace of God, and the older I get, the more I understand this. But when I understand the grace of God, there's but one response. God, my life belongs to you. You can do in me and through me whatever you choose to do. So grace makes us grateful. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks then about the third phase of the Christian life. Who you were, who you are, but number three, who you will be someday. Who you will someday be. In response to these Christians who are suing one another in the secular courts, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? By the way, when he says saints, that means all believers. Last week in chapter 5, we saw where Paul said it's not his job to judge those outside the church. And that's true at that point in time. But there is coming a time, the Bible says, when all believers, all who belong to the body of Christ, will be given authority and leadership in the world to come. Now today we can only speculate what that world will be like, but we know that God has future plans greater than we can imagine. I mean, do you not know that we are to judge angels, verse 3? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? As Paul said in chapter 2, God has a plan for his people that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into our minds. And so really Paul is challenging us to be mindful of that day as we live this day. In other words, keep your focus on eternity. You've heard this pastor say that dozens of times. Back to the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, speaking of the grace of God. 
and in context. Paul says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions. But then Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 in context. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope. In other words, the life to come. The glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Again, what is Paul saying to Titus? Titus, be mindful of that day as you live this day. Keep your focus on that which matters. So rather than allowing ourselves then to be distracted by petty matters... 1 Corinthians 6, lawsuits, and momentary pleasures, sex outside of marriage. Let's set our hearts, Paul's writing, on things above. Let's look to the future that God has planned for us, and let us think about becoming the person that God has made us to be. Verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. In other words, Let this be your focus, to become today the person we will be someday. A physician told a friend that at some point during medical school, the the same thing happens to every student. It's It's the same for students as they go through classes, as they go through college and whatever. Uh, For some, it's during their first semester, and for others, it's a little later. But at some point, those medical students begin to think and act and feel like a doctor. Of course, they understand, I'm still in training, I can't perform surgery, I can't prescribe medication. At this point, when someone tells me their ailments, I can only say, hmm. And they say, but I'm beginning to feel like a doctor, and pretty soon I'll be one. Now, when I go visit a doctor and I see, in my, I'm old, when I see kids being doctors, I'm going, okay, what will this bubble gummer tell me, you know? What will, you know, I just like, okay. As a matter of fact, this past Monday, I had a doctor's appointment, my pre-op for my knee surgery coming up in, in September, and, and he said this to me, and I wrote it down, and I said, that is really, that's good. He said, I said, you're spot on. He says, you know, he said, when it comes down to it, this is my primary care physician, when it comes down to it, I don't fix anybody, I just treat symptoms. That's, my doctor told me that. I'm going, you're spot on, all right? Because they're just, they're practicing medicine, all right? I knew shortly after I got saved and I came to faith in Jesus Christ in 1983 that God called me to be a pastor, to preach his word. But I can tell you back in 1983 and 84 and 85 and whatever, I didn't feel like a pastor, and I wasn't really sure how a pastor is supposed to feel, all right? Even while attending Bible college, I didn't feel like a pastor. Even though I was around pastors and missionaries and, and Christian leaders, it was probably my junior year in Bible college that I started to think, you know, this is really going to happen. I'm really going to be a pastor. And then uh, sometime my sophomore, junior year, I was asked to be interim pastor in Gackle, North Dakota. How many have heard of Gackle, North Dakota? Anyone? Have you? Gackle, North Dakota. 
It's a little town, a little German community, great people. Man, we, we would go up there, but it was like a little hour drive from, from Ellendale, North Dakota, went north towards Jamestown, little community. And when we got there in the winter months, I remember it was cold, lots of snow. We would have to turn on the heater, uh, the furnace, because the building was so cold. They kept it, I want to say, probably just above freezing. And you'd walk in there, you could see your breath. And the whole, the whole thing, I mean, every, pew, every piece of wood, it's all that cold. So we had to turn that up. Well, one Sunday, we were getting ready for the service. And there was probably 15 people there, 15, 20 people there. Uh, the district superintendent back then, Marcus Bakke, he walked in. And I thought, oh, great. And I thought, okay, he's the district superintendent. He's preaching today, not me. But then he said to me, I like to hear young pastors, young men preach uh, from Bible college. I want you to preach. I'm going, not today, not before you, you know. And, and I was like in fear and trepidation kind of thing. But I preached, and, and, and I was somewhat intimidated. But the, the older I got, and once I graduated and got to pastoring and so, I began to see myself more and more, I guess, as God sees me and as God's called me to be. Now, that was like uh, 37, 38 years ago. Uh, guess what? I am now comfortable in my calling, in God's calling on my life, and I see myself as God sees me. Now, that doesn't mean I have to put reverend on my checks at home because I could care less because to God it's Brian, all right? And it, once I retire, it's going to be Brian, but, but it's just like, okay, I know what God has called me to do. Well, this is what Paul is saying to us. Build your life around the person you will someday be, not around the person you used to be. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified, Paul says. Live that life, not the old life. And so with that in mind, in these last few minutes this morning, what I want to focus on is the third phase of the Christian life and how we can become the person we will someday be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul shows us some attitudes that we should be adopting. These are attitudes that can lead us away from the person we used to be to become the person God has created us to be. And so here they are. Number one, I will do what's right even though it means I get wronged. That's a hard one. Because this world and people will wrong you. If you've never been wronged, then I can tell you in the next year you probably will be wronged. All right. Uh, verse, uh, verse 7, and Paul's, Paul's saying instead of taking someone to court, why not just take the loss? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So, so many times we go through life like it's a competition, like there's a winner in every interaction, and we're afraid someone might get a slight advantage, as in, well, I can't let that person get ahead of me in traffic. I mean, they had the yield sign. I didn't. I should be ahead of them. And so we, we get around them. We want, to be in, we want to be front, you know, or I can't allow this person to inconvenience me. I can't let them get away with, with being rude. It's my job to call them out. It's my job to set them straight. No, it's not. See, when I, here, listen to this. When I became a Christian, I gave up my right to be right. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, 
You gave up your right to be right. See, Jesus gave us the supreme example of giving up everything, all his rights for a greater goal. Philippians 2 says, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Guess what? Slaves have no rights. And Jesus became a slave for our sakes. He gave up the right to be with his Father. And so Paul says, in effect, rather than insisting on being right all the time, about everything all the time, maybe we should just decide, you know, this really isn't worth the chase. Let's let it go. Leave the conflict behind. It might be costly, all right? But Paul is saying, you know, it's okay to let it go. Don't take these trivial matters to court. Plato said that a good man would rather be wronged than do wrong. He would rather be wronged than do wrong. Well, that should be our attitude. Willing to say, you know, I'm going to be on my best behavior even if no one else is. Number one. The second attitude, number two, I will do what I know is best, not merely what appears to be permissible. Paul said in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, here's a radical idea that Paul is acknowledging. Since your sins have been forgiven through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, you can rightfully say all things are lawful. But that doesn't mean that they're all helpful or as the King James Version of the Bible says, expedient. The NIV, the New International Version says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Now, I'm not one to... Uh, based doctrine on paraphrased Bibles, but I liked the message version of verse 12. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. Isn't that good? Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. Now, this may sound like a radical idea, but since the sin problem has been settled once for all, guess what? Sin is no longer the standard by which we measure our behavior. It's no longer a matter of right versus wrong. It's a matter of what is beneficial versus that which is not. Is this expedient? Is this beneficial? Is this spiritually appropriate? It may well be the Corinthians had placed fornication on a morally indifferent level, arguing that the presence of bodily appetites was enough reason to gratify them. In other words, well, since God gave me these appetites, I might as well indulge in them. That's why Paul says in verse 13, he mentions food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Perhaps the Corinthians considered body and soul separate, and since the body was to be done away with, it doesn't matter what you do with it. Eat all you want. Indulge. Have sex with whomever and whenever you want. Well, Paul quickly demolishes their viewpoint. Paul admitted the fact that there are certain natural appetites, but regulated them to a particular sphere because they are passing. In other words, in due time, God will render them inoperative. 
Most of us know that overeating is a sin. Will God forgive our gluttony? Yes, he will. He does, he has. Gluttony will not keep you out of heaven, but it may get you there sooner than you plan because overeating is not beneficial to anyone's health. I'm preaching to myself here. In fact, it's detrimental. So on one hand, you might get away with overeating, but you're not doing yourself any favors because overeating is neither helpful nor beneficial. Now, I always feel I have to tiptoe through this topic because I don't want it to sound at all like I'm saying you can get away with sin. You cannot get away with sin. Sin brings about its own misery and its own punishment always in due time. Even chapter 5, turn this person over to Satan. You know, God doesn't always immediately judge sin because sin has a way of bringing judgment on us. All right, dealt with that last week. But 1 Corinthians 6, 13, once again, the message paraphrase Bible says, you know the old saying, first you eat to live and then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. The message paraphrase, 1 Corinthians 6, 13. As Solomon said, the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Proverbs 11, verse 5. Now, I don't know many people who boldly dare to get away with the big sins, but I do know a lot of Christians who think they can get away with the little sins. And that doesn't work either. Sin, big or small, never ends well. Period. It's never beneficial. It's never expedient. It never works in your favor. So really our attitude needs to be, even when I think I can get away with less, I'm still going to do what is beneficial and what is best in the eyes of God. Here's the third and final attitude we need to adapt, adopt. Number three, I will do that which doesn't come easy in order to bring glory to God. I will do that which doesn't come easy in order to bring glory to God. Once again, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Other translations, I will not be mastered by anything. You see, the Bible declares that there can be pleasure in sin. We know this from our own experience. I always like to say, those who don't believe sin is pleasurable, have never tried it. Come on. I'm here to tell you that sin is fun and I was an expert at it. But the Bible also says that sin's pleasure is only for a season. Hebrews 11:25. Then it's over, leaving us bitter, and finally it destroys us. Church, a day of reckoning always comes. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. See, it's easier, much easier, simply to follow our pleasures with no resistance. For example, if it's sexual temptation, hey, just follow your physical desires wherever they lead you. If you're hungry, eat 
whatever you want. Go to that buffet, stuff your face. If you see something you want and you still got room on your credit card, buy it. You deserve it. You've earned it. If something doesn't go your way and you're on the verge of a tantrum, by all means, throw the tantrum. Tell everybody in the room exactly what you think of them and don't hold anything back. Friends, that's the easy way. That's the path of least resistance. The result, however, is that each of these actions will ultimately make you their slave and take away any possibility that you may have had to make your own choices. So Paul said that just because it's permissible doesn't mean he's willing to let himself be mastered by anything. You see, our physical desires were not meant to be recklessly indulged. They were meant to be managed, controlled, and put to their proper use. When I counsel people you know, from a biblical perspective regarding sins of the flesh, I'll remind them that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Grow that fruit in your life. A couple chapters down, we'll hear Paul say, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not, will not be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Even in today's text, chapter, chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so what? So glorify God in your body. What does that mean? It simply means that we're willing to do that which doesn't come easy in order to bring glory to God. Wrapping this up, quote by Dale Carnegie. He said, if you're not in the process of becoming the person you want to be, you are automatically engaged in becoming the person you don't want to be. Or to quote Bob Dylan in his song, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. He not busy being born is busy dying. He not busy being born is busy dying. Church, God is calling us to leave behind forever the person we used to be. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he's calling us to get busy being born into life that he's created for us. Why? Because you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. Your sins have been forgiven once and for all and forever. And now all you need has been given to you through Jesus Christ to become the person that God has designed for you to be. Amen. In that future day, we're going to be like him in every way. We're going to see him as he is. As I heard John Bevere say in one of his teachings, you know, about God changing us, we should all be changed. He says, guess what? When it comes to change, he's not going to change. We have to change. We have to change. We have to be transformed to his image. Until that day arrives, though, let's cooperate with Holy Spirit to become the person that God has called us to be. Let us be the person who will do right even when we get treated wrong. And I can guarantee you, you will be treated wrong in this world. 
Number two, be the person who will do what's best, not just what appears to be permissible. And finally, be the person who will even do that which doesn't come easy so that ultimately we can bring glory and honor to God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your life. Let's all stand and close in prayer.